0: I think that at some point, uh, that's going to sort of just disappear, I hope. You hope?
1: You still believe so.
0: Disappear? Well, I, I do, I do. Yeah, sure, at some point. Sure you do.
2: Can 2020 be over already,
1: please? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm how I'll get down the stairs. Jokers to the right, here I am Stuck in the middle with you You yes, sound stuck
2: in the From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain KGOE, Eureka In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast KSO in Cottage Grove KEPW in Eugene In Lancaster, Pennsylvania WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palenville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com, and happy to step in so Brad and Desi could enjoy their 4th of July holiday weekend. Not that they're going anywhere, because the nation is in COVID crisis and everything is shutting down again, as it should. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a detour. I'm going to share with you a couple of interviews. A little later on in the hour, we're going to talk to Jack Rice, a former radio colleague of mine, who is also a former CIA officer and currently works as a defense attorney and he lives in Minneapolis so all these worlds are converging on him Jack's got a lot to say before we get there though I'm gonna share with you an interview I did about a week ago with Jeff Charlotte Jeff Charlotte of course is the best-selling author and editor of seven books including The Family and Sea Street recently made into a Netflix documentary series and his latest book that we talked about a month or so ago this brilliant darkness a book of strangers which it's so good. It's different from anything else you've read, but it's Jeff Charlotte, so you need to read it. He's also a professor of writing at Dartmouth College and has a couple of articles in Vanity Fair magazine. The big one, and the reason I call Jeff, is titled, He's the Chosen One to Run America Inside the Cult of Trump. His rallies are church and he is the gospel. Uh, Jeff Charlotte, welcome back to the show.
0: Hi, Nicole. Good to be with you again.
2: Good to see you. Good to have you here. Always great to read your stuff, as disturbing as it is. So let's start here. As you do in your reporting, and you do in um, This Brilliant Darkness, and, and when you went to Russia to learn about um, you know, being gay in Putin's Russia. And um, you go, you went to some of these Trump rallies, you talk to people, you you try to understand where they're coming from, and the picture you paint is really, really scary. So um, <laughs> uh, this time, uh, you, obviously you weren't in, in uh, Phoenix last night, but you've been to a number of these Trump rallies, and this was the basis for this Vanity Fair piece. And, and it is a religion. It's a, it's, well, I think all religion is a cult, but this is a cult of a different color, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. You know, I, I did this in 2016. I did this in 2020 and, and both times I was sort of bothered by the way uh, my, my wonderful colleagues in the political press cover Trump rallies, which is they go, there's a metal cage um, and it's in the middle of the arena. And Trump uses it like a prop. It's, uh-huh he wants them there. He complains about them, he wants them there because then he can point to them and say, look at those scum, look at those liars. And every one turns around and they scream and so on. And I I always wanted when I go, that's why my colleagues stay in that middle cage. Um, So I buy my, I don't buy each sign up for a ticket and I wait in line for seven hours and, and I go in with the crowd. And I did this in 2016 and what I found then, was what I described as the prosperity gospel. It's so sort of a country cousin to uh, uh, ordinary evangelicalism is this idea that God wants you to get rich and so on. And Trump was sort of working that promise. Now it's much darker. Um, and I, I am interested in the, in the rally as a kind of a religious ritual. It's a much darker thing. Uh, it's very much about identifying and eradicating enemies within about secret knowledge. It's it's if your listeners are are familiar with the QAnon network of conspiracy theories, right? That is the core theology now of the Trump rally.
2: Wait, the QAnon is a theology. For those who do, I mean, I know QAnon is something that grew up online. It's a 4chan or an 8chan thing. These are places I don't go to. I just know that these people are crazy. What, what is QAnon?
0: So QAnon, uh, I mean, it really sort of came into being uh, back after the 2016 election, uh, p- folks might remember something called Pizzagate and yes. the sort of strange idea that Hillary Clinton was running a child trafficking ring out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria. It's a nice place. Um, it showed up when in that WikiLeaks dump of, of communication. Sometimes Clinton staffers would say, hey, let's go meet at Comet Pizza and, you know, what, they, they really weren't doing the sort of like well maybe they were going to the pizzeria to get pizza now the only <laughs> one thing they could be doing at the pizzeria is running an international child trafficking ring uh, a man took it very seriously went with an assault rifle and, and yes and open fire fortunately hurt no didn't hurt anybody out of that grew this vast network of conspiracy theories um around this uh mysterious figure called q who uh Um, puts these posts uh, on things like 4chan and 8chan and so on. Um, And basically the idea is that there's going to be a great awakening, which Mm -hmm. is religious language. That's American religious revival. Sometimes they call it the storm and that Trump is at the center of this, that Trump is identifying all the deep state uh, is, is worse than bureaucrats. You don't like the swamp drain. The swamp doesn't mean just fire people. It means it's going to be coming sort of, a a sea of indictments there's going to be people hanging from trees for treason (laughs) and so on this is the fantasy and it's one that trump has moved closer and closer to in his speeches Uh, never quite outright but the q believers sort of interpret what he says um, spin it and he doesn't quite shut it down and in fact over the course of the rallies that i went to in the fall and then looking at that Tulsa rally the other day, you see him really clearly. The more frightened he gets about his electoral prospects, the more directly he plays to that kind of conspiracy mongering. It's at the core of his base. It's not fringe and that's right. really key. Like it's, it's easy to say, oh, but those are the weirdos, right? It's not everyone at a Trump rally even has ever heard of QAnon. Right. Um, but I met very few people who didn't, had not adopted ideas that weren't coming out of that ethos. They didn't know where it came from. The idea that Joe Biden is a child molester, Um, the idea that the Democrats are not just people that you disagree with politically or even people that you really don't like, that they in fact are guilty secretly of the most heinous crimes. Yeah, they
2: they believe that
0: that anything is licensed. Any kind of violence is okay.
2: Wow. No. And they they these people believe, you know, I look, I, I I know in certain parts of the country, people believe that Jews have tails and horns and things like that. These same people, I guess some of them are, they believe that Democrats are pedophiles, that we're, you know, killing people, we're murderers. I mean, some of them actually told you this with a straight face?
0: Uh, everybody. Everybody. Every, I, must have, I must have interviewed about 100 people. I have to say, the first time I heard someone say that, oh, no, they're not just trafficking children, they're eating them, it's cannibals. I thought, okay, this person, this person's out there. The fourth or fifth time, I realized oh this is not a universal belief but it's not an uncommon one and i remember i was standing i was standing on the floor of the arena we were waiting for trump to come uh and i was standing with a group of people in the crowd there and a woman was explaining to me all right her belief that the clintons in particular were involved in and cannibalism and i turned to the other people around me and they just you, you you know but for their trump gear you never would have expected them to hold unusual beliefs our conversation up to that point had been about uh it had been about the area it had been about you know boating uh recreational activities and i said do you do you does this make sense to you and they didn't all say oh yes they said well i don't know i'm not sure about cannibalism i'm not sure (laughs) that might be an exaggeration oh my god but do you see what in other words you keep expanding the range of crimes. So now cannibalism is—that's an exaggeration. That's a possibility. Sure.
2: Wow. Oh my God, that's just insane. Then and, and Trump does nothing to dissuade them of these notions. I mean, at least we remember John McCain. the a, a, a piece that's been uh, played ad nauseum all over when they're trying to show this is a principled Republican in a town hall when a woman goes that Obama it, it's scary. He's scary. He's an Arab. And 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 McCain says no, he's actually a really good person, which you know implies that if you're an Arab, you can't be a really good person. But yet, yeah, but that's besides the point. He at least corrected the person, tried to dissuade her of this notion of the error of her ways. Trump does none of that, and in fact, Charlotte, you wrote, um, here, here's a quote. Uh, you said like scripture, every tweet, every misspelling, every typo. Every strange capitalization, especially the capitalizations, this one man told you, has meaning. The truth is right there in what the media thinks are his mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. Um, They believe there's a code, like a secret code here, and the, the, the his weird capitalizations in his tweets are a coded message to the believers?
0: Yeah, that, that came from a guy named Pastor Dave, who's with a group called God Wins, which is another— QAnon sort of slogan, and I encountered yet another pastor wearing a t-shirt that said, uh, God, or, or Trump's tweets matter, Yes, this repugnant play on, on oh, black lives God. matter. Um, and there were, there was those t-shirts were scattered all over uh, oh that particular arena. And I got to talking to him. And I mean, it, what's interesting is that these folks are sort of projecting pedophilia. And then he he says, well, this is what we do. He says, there's another guy uh, who was called the Trumped up cowboy, wears a cowboy hat and i guess he's done well in life and he says and he found this group of boys in the woods in kentucky and now he flies them around on a plane to trump rallies all over the country and i said what are you talking about so where are their parents what what do you mean Uh, he found them in the woods in kentucky later he said he found them at a rally (laughs) still it's a group of teenage boys and i saw Uh, them okay and they become evangelists and they're wearing these t-shirts to say trump tweets matter and when they they don't mean that though as a joke they do mean it as a scriptural idea, and that's a really common idea that uh, the way to understand the typos, the capitalizations and so on, that this is all Trump speaking in code because of course the vast fake news uh, um, is, is against them. And that's really, you know, the enemy within is mm-hmm. journalists. Right. Um, uh, so he needs to do this. And, and at that particular rally, Brad Pascal, Trump's campaign manager, comes on the stage and he gives a shout out uh <laughs> this pastor and his boys and he oh, says something God. like uh, he says and he found um this group of boys, boys. in the woods in kentucky and everyone cheers <laughs> and, I, and i said there's you know there's there's fifteen thousand people here no one's saying wait a minute what about the parents right. <laughs> where are the parents in this and and don't shouldn't these kids be in school um but no, it's more important to go and evangelize uh, for Trump. and and that's that's the the word of the Trump then comes out on the stage. And one of the things that I, that I really wanted to get across in this article and I, and it, I wanted to, to focus on the beliefs of the followers, but I did also look at the speeches themselves. and it's frustrated me that my colleagues in the press, because they still are looking this at this as conventional politics, ugly right. politics, but still conventional politics, at that particular speech, Trump must have spent 20 minutes describing decapitations, disembowelments, beatings yeah. with baseball bats, like a horror movie, a slasher flick. None of that shows up in the news. And that's where you, know, you have these elaborate conspiracy theories. He comes out and he describes all these horrible crimes being committed by dark skinned illegals. Right. Often he describes young, blonde, innocent girls. And then he says then democrats are going through their prisons and finding rapists and sending them out into the countryside oh my god Uh, you know and so if your president says this and if you believe that what does that license for you right yeah what level of hate what level of violence does that license for you and i think that's what's really
2: terrible that that is that is all frightening now jeff charlie you you called it the this religion, this thing, a, a form of Gnosticism. Gnost, what, what is that?
0: So the Gnostic gospel and in 2016 it was a prosperity gospel, which is all about get rich quick. Okay. I think in 2020, it's the Gnostic gospel, which is this uh, ancient Christian heresy. And, and this is, of course, a distorted Trumpian version of the Gnostic gospel, but it's all about secrets. It's all about the access to secret knowledge the elites are trying to keep from you. The Gnostics believed that the early church leaders were the bureaucrats. They were the swamp. And that in fact, even the, the figure that we call God was fake news. Oh uh, that there was a secret divine, only the initiated. And how did you find this? Not through your expertise, not by going to college. Uh, you did it, as Trump says, uh It's just you knew it in the gut. Or remember when he was asked what metric would he use to determine when to open up America? He said, "It's just in here. I just know it." Yeah, that's the sort of gnostic wisdom. Wisdom, and it's also based on this idea of enemies. Enemies everywhere, and the enemies are not people who come at you looking like bad guys. The enemies are those who seem—they're the official story. They're the people who, you know, who are the enemies—the EPA. Uh, the Deep State Department, as Trump has called it. Um, and uh, so the idea is you can be one of the initiate. And now that Trump is starting to say, hey, you know what? They're not the elite. We're the elite. Yeah, He's up into this idea that you, if you listen to me, you have this secret knowledge. Right. You know how it really works.
2: Right. Now, you know, when he came out and said, uh, I've got it right here, he, he said this
0: I am the chosen one.
2: You know, the, the, some are trying to. Oh, it was—he was joking. But they also said he was joking. You know, when he said to inject disinfectant to kill the virus and um, uh, and the other nonsense he spews. Oh, I—you know—I told them to slow down the testing. Oh, it's a joke. No, it wasn't a joke. He believes. The, the bull that he's being fed by these people who believe that his capitalizations are se- spelling out a code for them to, I guess, be get in on the secret that the Gnostics believe
0: exists. Well, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. There. Okay. I, he, when he called himself the chosen one, uh, he was joking. He when was he joking. Said, <laughs> Slow down the testing. He was joking. Really? But you have to you understand Trumpian rhetoric. And this is how it plays out again. It's joke, not joking. Joking, you say something racist, you pull back and then you say it again. He floats a joke like, you know, maybe I'll stay more than four more years. Maybe I'll stay 10 more years. I'm just joking. Or maybe I'm not. And you want that. That's in a sort of authoritarian rhetorical model of destabilization. Am I serious? Am I not serious? And you it's also a way of expanding what's normal. The first time you say it's a joke, the second time it becomes (laughs) real. When he said it was a chosen one, yeah, I've listened to enough Trump to understand that that's his, he's joking, but the joke is a a test balloon. And I, uh, the hundred some people I interviewed, I, I don't know, single digits did not, they either believe Trump was a chosen one or that um, some believed he was divine himself. Wow. Um, uh, But the idea is very widespread. It's not fringe at all. It's quite a mainstream idea. It's it's held by uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, former Secretary of uh, Energy uh, Rick Perry, that Trump is uh, a divine biblical figure chosen by God. And his very crudeness, his very crassness is evidence of God's selection. I mean, because you say, look at this guy, he's thrice married as people like to say and so on. That's proof he must've been chosen by God because he's not a normal candidate, he's outside of the establishment um, and so uh, clearly god is working through him and god is working through him to do something violent and that's i think what's important is that there's a transformation in the christian right that god needs a a well as one pastor told me he says you know maybe this coronavirus we should understand it as a purge oh, yeah. a purge of a sinful nation
2: oh my god Oh, yeah. that sounds like Pat Robertson stuff. You know, Jeff Charlotte, when we go back to the family in C Street, your, your books from a decade ago now, we learned about this religious to me as a non-religious person, a very strange, creepy religious undercurrent in Washington DC, the Dominionists and 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 just that the the the, the, ew, the icky stuff that went on there. This is different from the Trump believers, though, is it or is it? Are they the same people? Because that's what Pompeo and those guys, Rick Perry and all them are, right?
0: Uh, I mean, what makes Trumpism powerful and I think what the left needs to really grapple with maybe more than we have uh, so far is that the right is not monolithic, right? Right. There's many different strands. And when movements become powerful, is when they converge. So Trumpism, Good. Trumpism represents a great merger of a lot of different m- movements. So QAnon, the QAnon believers, um, and that includes not just you know yokels and so on, but that includes General Flynn, who of course right. we just learned today is is free to go, um, and the folks like in the family who run the National Prayer Breakfast and so on these are coming from different places. Um, and there's a guy named Ralph Drolinger who runs a Bible study in the white house. Um, he's not on the same page theologically with them, but when you get this convergence and that's converging with the alt-right and it's converging with the business right as represented by Mitch McConnell and everyone's so sort of saying, you know what, we're getting enough out of this, but it goes further than that kind of cynicism, right? People t- say they look at the deal and they see it as transactional. What, Trump has done has made the deal transformational. The Christian right isn't what it was anymore. Trump is also not what he was anymore. Trump began in a transactional relationship with the Christian right, but now Trump's sort of sense of himself as in fact divinely anointed, um, that's become real. Joke, not joke, joke, right. not wow. joke until yeah. it becomes a reality.
2: You know, I remember, I recall uh, lots of people um, who were screaming that Barack Obama was the antichrist and again I'm somebody who doesn't have religion so i, I don't I, I don't know what i'm talking about with any of this but i recall they were the antichrist was supposed to be someone who's very charismatic uh, uh, and and someone would who would um oversee the the second coming and the rapture do they believe that Donald Trump is that or do they think he is the messiah
0: i i think there's really, I mean, this is actually one of the things we want to be careful about is um, there are rapture theology, right? Yeah. It's it's a real thing. But I, I think know. the left sometimes it seems so crazy. The left wants to imagine the right all enthralled by the rapture and they're trying to bring about the rapture. Nobody talks about the
2: rapture. No? nobody. Okay.
0: No, my care <laughs> about no one's, in, and and that's bad news. That means these people are talking about organizing for power in this world. Right. In other words, we do ourselves no favors by saying, "God, these guys are rubes, they're suckers, and so on." They're very good. They're very good at what they do. The Trump rallies that I went to after I was coming, I was traveling around Trump rallies all last fall, and I oh, come back sorry. and I tell people what I've seen, and they say, "Oh, but it's all paid actors, right?" And I say, "These are the best damn actors I've ever seen." That that's the case. They're not paid actors. I did a survey on social media. I said. Uh, Do you think this is AstroTurf or smoke and mirrors or real? I got about a thousand responses. Very unscientific survey. Right. 75% said, oh, it's AstroTurf or smoke and mirrors. And I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, it's real. It's real. Uh, Broward County, deepest blue Broward County. That's where I live. You were at the
2: sunrise, the arena, right? It's 10 minutes from where I live.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, that's not a right wing area, nope. 22,000 people and more outside. They wow. were real there and the, the rallies are well organized. Um, there's real intelligence working on here. And then the the thing that happens, we, we saw that good news on Saturday that at Tulsa, he did not get the crowd he wanted. That right. was good news. Yeah. Keep in mind, that was probably his most widely watched rally speech ever.
2: Right. Everyone watched it on Fox. We, they had their highest ratings ever.
0: Right, and people who haven't seen his speeches before said, "Oh, it's incoherent, it's junk. My God, the guy's losing his mind." That was a great speech. Trump's <laughs> one of the best orders I've ever seen. Oh um, my God! He's not—he's not working on the—he's not working to appeal to you, but that way he has what I call the double signal. He'll, and you see that you really experience this in the rally. He'll tell the official story, he's reading from the teleprompter, and then he looks up. And he maybe curses, and he says, "Dumb son of a bitch!" And the crowd loves roars. It, right? And he's off script, and it's it's seemingly incoherent, but it's experienced as intimacy. I'm telling you the real deal. I'm giving you the real story, and it's very very effective. And when his timing is on, and it was in Tulsa, that was maybe the scariest Trump speech I've ever seen. I think we should pay more attention. That was a turning point speech. Uh, when the timing is on, he's got remarkable control of those who are ready to receive the message.
2: It, this is it is frightening and and the way you know it's real is look a lot of people voted for him. Um they're out there and they are rabid fans. You you, you talk about them some of them follow him around the country like they're you know grateful dead or fish fans and they they go from town to town a
0: friend friend of mine coined them the hateful dead (laughs) not the grateful dead yeah i mean there's some of those folks who've been to dozens of rallies uh i i myself would you know because i i had the advantage of a magazine backing me so i could fly around the country you know, so here I am in Florida, and here I am in Louisiana, and here yeah. I'm in Pennsylvania. And there's the same guys uh, at some of them. Now, don't all oh, great? So it's just one small core. No, there's a core that travels, and then there's the the locals. I mean, uh, the, the Amish who showed up at the Pennsylvania rally were not there in Florida. The Venezuelans who were at the Florida rally were not there in Louisiana. Right. Um,
2: but and- there's the core that goes town that go to rally to rally, and they tailgate, I guess.
0: They tailgate and um, uh, there's, it's just like a Grateful Dead show. There's bad dancing. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of bad dancing and they look forward to seeing one another. They look forward to this community. Um, They look forward to what they experience is the creativity of like how many different ways can you put Donald Trump's ugly mug on a t-shirt? How many violent, sort of image, images can you see? And, and it's one of the things, again, that I feel like is not reported enough is the prevalence at Trump rallies. Um, we all know the red hat. Right. Uh, uh, the prevalence of uh, a punisher image, imagery, the skull, um, it's also been adopted by police as an anti-Black Lives Matter symbol. It's a fascist symbol. Oh so skulls everywhere. Um, lots and lots of imagery of, uh, t-shirts with Trumps with guns, right? Oh, yes. There's the there's one with a big pistol, the 45, because 44 was wasn't enough. <gasps> there's one of Trump as as the Terminator holding a pistol, the Trumpinator. There's all sorts of Trump as Rambo, Trump on a, a tank. Um, that's the imagery that's really common. You can see whole families, kids, decked out and this really violent death cult imagery. I mean, what else is do you put it when you see a whole family decked out in Punisher gear—a skull, right. a mom, dad, and and two kids—we're um, talking about a death cult, and they're cheering as he tells stories about violent killings.
2: Right, the killing of a teenager or a, a woman by a by an illegal, right, as he calls them. Uh, yeah, it, that he does all the time. It's disturbing, you know. Jeff, Charlotte, we're wrapping up here because we're coming to the end of the hour. But somebody in the chat room just said he's a little too um uh, uh impressed with Trump for my taste. Just to make it clear, I know you're not a Donald Trump fan. I'm guessing you, 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 you know. I gotta tell you, you know, I gotta say, I'm. Yes.
0: I- the left has got to get its head out of its ass <laughs> right. because I've been, I've been reporting on this for years. Yes, you and have. We keep, we want to keep telling ourselves, ha ha. He's so stupid. He's so stupid. He's made a mess. He's harmed incredible numbers of people. Yes, you want to get, you want to get up and fight Trump. You figure out what he's doing. You figure out what he's doing. I'm not impressed with him in any positive way. I put my body on the line. Yeah. I don't sit there in the press cage. I go out amongst those crowds. Right. And I say, Hey, I'm not going to say, oh, they're all dumb and they're all just foolish and we're all good. And then everything's going to go back to normal and it's all going to be fine. No, we have a threat. Let's face it with realism instead of reassuring ourselves and consoling ourselves. I feel strongly about that and you can tell. um, But we we are in danger of repeating the mistake we made in 2016 and 2020. Jeff
2: Charlotte talking about his uh, piece in the current edition of Vanity Fair magazine. Definitely worth the read. Because we need to know what we're up against. All right. After a very quick timeout, we'll be back with Jack Rice, former CIA officer, a Minneapolis-based criminal defense attorney, and an old radio friend. That's next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on The
1: broadcast. <laughs> making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks.
2: You're listening to The Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, filling in for Brad and Desi. Joining me on the line right now is an old friend, not old, but a friend for a long time. Let's put it that way. Jack Rice... uh, (laughs) I try to inject humor wherever I can, Jack, because things are so crazy right now that if you don't laugh, you know, the alternative is a whole lot worse. Anyway, Jack Rice, a former CIA officer who's also a defense attorney who lives in Minneapolis. So, oh, my goodness, you're busy. You're 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 on three fronts. Everything's hitting you all at once, huh?
3: Yeah, it's been pretty crazy since well into May and really what's been happening since that time. It's come at a lot of different levels.
2: Wow. So let, let's let start with the, the big question about the CIA. You spent – how long is a CIA operative?
3: About five years. But I've done a lot of work even since then that's been tied into what they were doing. So I've had multiple trips into Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, I was in Afghanistan when it was really the hottest, about 2009, and at the end of that. So that was the last trip in there. Um, it's just – it's the nature of what we do sometimes.
2: Wow. So So when you first saw the report – Uh, probably probably last Friday when the rest of us did from The New York Times that Russia was paying a bounty to Taliban fighters and aligned uh, fighters for American lives in Afghanistan. What was your initial thought?
3: Well, it's interesting you bring it up, because from my perspective, I wasn't shocked at all. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't shocked for a lot of different reasons. We have to look sort of historically at the relationship between the Americans, the Russians and I'll say slash Soviets because you can go into the late 70s and into the 80s, the Americans were running ops with the Mujahideen specifically designed to kill Russians. So I mean, oh, this is something that we oh. were doing. You can even go further and realize that What the Russians have been doing has been working very closely with the Haqqani network, also with the Taliban inside of Afghanistan, trying to drive the West and the Americans out. So we know that that's been true for a very long time. That that Cold War piece, the the Great Game, as it's been called, um, for more than a century and a half, is certainly alive and well. We can look at what the Russians were doing when they brought in uh, Russian mercs to actually attack. Uh, American troops in Syria. We saw what was going on there. We saw what the Russians were more than willing to do when they've been willing to kill and poison some of their own people including that man that they did uh in London. Right. this uh, I mean, So, right. so yeah. when you think really broadly, you realize that this is something that the Russians certainly would have been capable of doing. And Vladimir Putin has been very clear, I mean, very public about this for several decades, about his willingness to, to stand up for his country. And he sees this as a piece of that. So honestly, no shock at all.
2: Right. Now, as far as um, whether or not The president of the United States would be informed about such uh, intelligence. That would be a no-brainer with any other administration, right? Um, I I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I I would think that would be the case.
3: Yeah, there's no question about it when you think about what the purpose of a presidential daily brief is designed to do. Now, remember, it's it's multi, multifaceted. It's not just somebody sitting in front of the, the president talking. It's also about a report, and it's not massive because it's designed to cull a ton of information, a ton of sources, and to put those in front of the president so if he has questions or if his people have questions, they come back at you. And if you think about the information that really was public let 's lay this out because honestly we haven 't seen this. Right. What really seems to have come out was this was that American forces had had continued to fight this fight uh, against the Taliban, and what they started hearing was that there was something about funding and that yeah. this funding had come from the Russians. And so what, what uh, American forces were doing was running up that chain, watching what senior Taliban leaders were doing and what they were saying. Then what happened was there was another operation with SEAL Team 6 that actually went into a safe house tied to the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, and they found some $500,000 in cash, yeah. they, in, in US, U.S. cash. From there, the question is, where does that come from? Now, separately, another set of this, another piece of this, was that they found SIGINT, signal intelligence, more information that actually came that was tied from the Russian side, from the GRU, that's the, the military intelligence, right, right. actually referring to this very same issue. And so you have multiple pieces of evidence that all came together talking about this point. You could go back to April of, of 2019, and they started looking back at these issues and saying, are there any operations that just didn't make sense that seemed consistent with this? It's an intelligence process. That's how you would do it. And they found back in April, there was a, uh, an attack on a convoy that mm-hmm. killed three US Marines. That seems exactly the kind of thing that they would have done based upon all of the intelligence that they got. So let's boil all that down. You would sit down with the president and say, this is what we're looking at. This is what we're concerned about. Is it a guarantee? Nothing is a guarantee in the intelligence world. Right. But you certainly laid out because the president needs to understand not just what's going on, but then to say, what do we do in response? When you have dead soldiers on the ground, dead, dead Marines on the ground in Afghanistan, this is the kind of stuff that you put before a president and say, what are we going to do?
2: Right. Right. But now they're saying, well, it wasn't put in front of him, right, because it wasn't actionable. But then we're hearing reports that they put it into the the PDB, the presidential daily briefing, probably because they know he doesn't read it. And they didn't go. This is what they're saying. They didn't go into detail with him because um, f- officials have learned through the last over the last three years that you don't that Donald Trump doesn't want to hear about Russia. He's got a thing for Vlad and doesn't want to hear about Russia. He gets angry.
3: Well, when you look at what has happened consistently – is we can say no question that when the Russians invaded the Crimea, it's a massive issue in terms of the ramifications for the U.S. and, and allies in the region. Uh, what we found was that what President Obama did was pull the Russians out of the G8. What, what they did was they actually ramped up sanctions, and they were pushing even harder. Right. And then, of course, when the Trump administration came in, they pulled back on all of that. And, in fact, even not that long ago, in the last few months, we find that uh, – President Trump was trying to put Putin back in, and the Russians back into the G7. Yes, yeah. So the idea that they're just ignoring that issue, but, but, but by the way, you mentioned the presidential uh, daily brief piece. Right. The idea that because this piece wasn't highlighted, that somehow the president simply can ignore <laughs> right. what's in the presidential daily brief. Because think about this a sec, and, and, and I think about this from my, my experience working in the intelligence community anyway, that the information every single sentence that goes into this and it's only a few pages every single sentence in this is backed up which mm-hmm. means you can take this and like pull that string like you would on a sweater there's something attached to it and so if he simply said or if simply somebody had looked at this and said dead soldiers dead marines tell me and it would go and they would lay it out the idea that He simply doesn't bother. That's his his response is because I'm incompetent.
2: Therefore, I'm safe. Right. I mean, that literally is the defense. It is. I mean, and and it goes back to the, the old Watergate question. What did he know and when did he know it? And I'll add on to that. If he didn't know it, to quote Joe Biden, he's derelict in his duties. And he did if he did know it, he's derelict because he hasn't done anything. And now that they're saying, okay, now he's been briefed and he's still going to do nothing. Uh, Is that (laughs) what what kind of response is that, Jack Rice? That has
3: been the the, the larger question. So if we lay it out, he let's say, hypothetically, he knew. If he knew and he chose to do nothing, why? Right. Why? Does it have to do with him not understanding it? Or does it have to do with it it's the Russians and so it's different? And that's assuming he knew. Yeah. Let's say he didn't know. Right. The question is then would be why? Right. Because if it's in the presidential daily brief, that means it's right there. That's you right. can't deny it, you can't dismiss it. Is it that he doesn't know what he's doing or that he doesn't care? Either way, it's either complete incompetency or something far, far deeper and darker right. which I can leave to somebody else. So when you look at the options. The problem is, is he's backing himself into a corner, which the corner results at, at best, at best, it's incompetence. Yeah, right. And that's something that is simply unacceptable because there are three extended families who are burying their sons and grandsons because of what happened. And to simply say, you yeah, know, you know, things happen. That's not good enough for the American people, nor should it ever be, and for, for once, Can't we just decide that this is something that's actually above politics?
2: You would think. I, I, and and I think we, maybe we're starting to see some cracks in the Republican armor, but not many. I mean, a few people have raised eyebrows Liz Cheney for I think she sees the writing on the wall. She's the first one to start, you know, start pushing back on him. But not enough. Can you imagine if, if this came out under a Democratic president? What kind of hell they'd be raising on the right? It's just, the hypocrisy is just stunning. So um, wow, Jack Rice, this. So this is uh this is serious stuff I mean to me that sounds like treason am i am I reaching too far with that word?
3: you know again, from my perspective what where where I'm sitting with is is i'm still I'm still sitting with the incompetency piece <laughs> rather than its than it was actually purposeful uh-huh. um now, now there may be more information and by the way, he's had so much behavior where he's been willing to deny this and dismiss this. And certainly he's pulled back and created such a massive vacuum that's allowed the Russians to operate at incredible levels. And I'm not just talking with the Pakistanis, with the Afghanis, with what we're seeing uh, in Syria, uh, what he's done with Turkey, so many different areas where the Russians are flexing their muscles and the Americans are literally left doing nothing and just watching from the sidelines. So much for America being great again. Yeah. Uh, But that, that in itself really does make this suspect because what this has al- done is this has allowed the Russians to continue running ops against the United States and endangering American citizens and our allies along the way. And by the way, this isn't just the Americans saying this. The Brits have already come up very publicly yes. because the Brits were actually also targeted here. Right. There are, are multiple other countries operating in the region. When I was in Kandahar, when I was, when I was in Kabul, when I was in Herat and other places, um, these are multiple operations that are being run. And to know that the Russians are continuing the fight against the Americans and simply saying, you know, those things happen. And actually, not just saying that, you're actually rewarding Vladimir Putin Along the way, that's the part that I find uh, disturbing is really not the word I would go with. I find that suspect.
2: Suspect in that you don't think it's real or suspect that it's too convenient. In what way is it suspect?
3: It's suspect in that if you know what you know, and we know this, and you continue to allow it, and you know all of the other things that this president has been more than willing to allow, it seems purposeful. Yeah. And that's the part that tells me that it's not just incompetence. Gotcha. So Because if you're saying, I don't know what I'm doing, okay, well, that's terrifying for a whole bunch <laughs> of reasons. Exactly. But if what you're saying is, I do know what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it purposely, that's the part that's making me, as a, as a former intel officer, look at this issue and go, Christ, and is me, this really where and, we are?
2: And that's what makes me say Treason. It's aiding and abetting the enemy. He's standing by knowing that Russia is paying a bounty for American soldiers' heads on a platter. If that's not treason, I don't know what is.
3: As we, as we get closer and as, as more of this starts to come in, because, again, understand, you, you, we're swinging. The parameters of what we're looking at now are treason on the one side <sighs> to sheer incompetency right. on the other, and oh there's nothing in, there's nothing outside of those. you got to find where on the spectrum you're going. That's not a really great place no, to be. No, it, it I is I don't care not. who you are, especially when you have somebody who's the most powerful person on the planet. <sighs> that's That's your guy.
2: Right. And now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, and where you're at, Jack Rice in Minneapolis, uh, a movement has begun because the police were out of control and murdered a man on video for the world to see. So um, just how's that for a segue? How is life in Minneapolis these days?
3: It's brutal. It's a it's a brutal place because you can't look away. You're right. You know, I think for so long, for so long, what we would do is we would see a horrible thing happen. And then we would say, "Okay, we're going to do something. And people would come in and say, "Okay, a few bad apples, they'd fire somebody. And they might prosecute. And they never did. And then we would move on. That's not happening here. What you're seeing now and again, I live 10 blocks from where George Floyd was murdered.
2: Wow.
3: And... I I watched this. I could hear the gunshots. I could see the smoke. I could smell it. I was right by it. I was in those streets, and I was watching this. I watched when the National Guard come in. Some of these people I know. I've been I've been deployed, and I was walking alongside some of these soldiers that I've known. And I've done this in Iraq and all Kosovo, all over the world, and and Afghanistan, and 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 where we were was a place where. It was undeniable, because this is the part that gets to me about it, is when it first happened, the response from the police, and this is frequently missed, the response from the police was this. They said there was a claim that a man was passing a fake $20 bill. They went to the scene to investigate They went to talk to a man, and he didn't cooperate. They put him to the ground, and he immediately went into some sort of physical arrest, some um, physical issue. So they called in EMTs. They called in paramedics, and he died at the scene. That's how they they described it. Guess what? That's how they've been describing this for 200 years. Yep. Yeah. The problem, of course, is they had three or four people standing around them with videotapes, with with their phones,
0: mm-hmm.
3: running the videos, and we can say with certainty that but for those people, that would have been the narrative. Yeah. Because that was the narrative. And finally, finally, there were people who said, "Not anymore, not anymore." And yeah. and that's that's where we are right now. You're seeing an effort to to uh, dismantle the police department of Minneapolis, yes. which, by the way, is in desperate need of it. It's an interesting conversation because I think that those on the right are trying to make this argument that this is going to be bedlam because they're going to get rid of the police. And the problem is, is they're using that and they're beating that drum every day when, in fact, what people are really saying is the police are really bad at certain things. And I can say this. I'm a former prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I'm a criminal defense lawyer, I've been doing this for decades, and I know this city. And, and what I can tell you is that there are some things like mental health. There are some things uh, uh, like some domestic-related issues, some things where people are suicidal, where bringing in the police is literally the worst thing you could ever Sorry. do. I've had cases personally where I've seen things happen to clients of mine that the police have done that would blow your mind. I believe it. And the idea that you would exclude those things. And simply say, we're going to take the money away from you that you get to do the things that you do because you're so poor at it. You do it so poorly. We want somebody else to do this. Uh, you're not hearing that from the right because that's that doesn't fit their mantra. But that's literally what's going on here. And positively, that's what people are continuing to move toward no matter what because they've seen the worst of the worst, and it's been happening here for a very long time.
2: Wow. Wow. And, and you are a criminal defense attorney. In fact, you sent me a note saying uh, – on a well unrelated but related note you said you represent the man who pulled down the Columbus statue what tell me about <laughs> that
3: well wow. uh, there's so much going on yes. in, in the twin cities in, yeah. in minneapolis in, Saint and Paul everywhere. st paul is the capital my office is is in st paul and my office is probably about i don't know about 4 5 600 yards from uh from the state capital from wow. where this okay. was pulled down wow. essentially what happened was Native American uh, tribes in Minnesota uh, have been not just troubled but but horrified by uh, Christopher Columbus and the statue that's been up at the Capitol since 1931. And they had asked that it be removed over and over to no avail. They continued again and again to make this point. And, in fact, what you heard people continuing to say after it was toppled uh... that that if they just followed the process i can tell you within the last week and a half they finally had a board meeting of something called the cap board this is the the capital improvements board essentially what what came out of that board meeting and there were republicans and and democrats there it's chaired by the lieutenant governor uh... they came out and acknowledged for the very first time ever that in fact there is no process whatsoever to remove a statue from the grounds once it was put in place What's carved on this statue, it's a 10-foot bronze statue that sits on about an 8-foot granite base and carved across the base of the statue of of Christopher Columbus is Christopher Columbus, discoverer of America. (laughs)
1: Let's
3: be clear. (laughs) Historically, and I can tell you objectively Mm – he didn't discover America. No, he did not. But more importantly, what he did when he came to the Western Hemisphere is he took control of a region killing thousands of people, driving, and they have this, it's verified, yep. that he was, he was giving 9- and 10-year-old girls to his sailors, essentially oh as sex slaves. Oh this God. was sexual trading. This is oh what he was doing. Yeah. And, and so the idea that you hold him up as something that he isn't And you tell the Native American community who has faced genocide subsequently as a result of the lie to finally say enough is enough is an extraordinary thing. This is a massive fight. It's an international fight. You've seen it with Confederate issues, but there's yep. issues going on all over the world right now. Yep. And I've had people reach out to me across the planet on this very topic right now. So it's one hell of a fight I'm in the middle of.
2: Wow. Well, I'm glad you're on our side, Jack Rice, because um, uh, I'd call you too. I'd love to have you. <laughs> if, I, if I'm ever in need, you're the guy I'm calling. Jack Rice, um, thank you for weighing in on all this. I can't imagine what you're going through there. I hope you're staying safe when you're out and about with a mask and the social distancing and everything
3: <laughs> because i am we're in important. the midst of- i mean you know guess what it's not a hoax by the way by the way the the, the president the president called uh the, the russians yes. actually trying to kill americans he a called hoax. that a hoax too
2: i know the, the 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 pandemic is a hoax the russia investigation was a hoax the impeachment was a hoax and now this bounty issue is a ho- everything's a hoax anything that is not his uh, world viewer his idea or his game plan is a hoax and that's the only word he uses because it's the only word he knows <laughs> jack rice you're I'm the with best you, my friend we've been <laughs> friends a long time yes we have thank you so much jack uh, people can follow you on twitter at jack rice find you on facebook and jackrice.net is your website jack thank you, uh, you can always so much find me. i can always find you in a moment a few closing words for today on confederate monuments They're not my words, but they're words you need to hear. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi on the (laughs) broadcast.
1: Coming, but I know a change gonna come.
2: Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today. The 4th of July is the time for patriotism. This year, I think our patriotism is taking a different form, perhaps that of wanting to correct the wrongs in our country's history. There's an op-ed that appeared in the New York Times a couple of days ago, written by a poet named Carolyn Randall Williams, and I want to read it to you. These are words that we all need to hear. The headline reads, You want a Confederate monument? My body is a Confederate monument. And here's what Carol Randall Williams wrote. I have rape-colored skin. My light brown blackness is a living testament to the rules, the practices, the causes of the Old South. If there are those who want to remember the legacy of the Confederacy, if they want monuments, well, then my body is a monument. My skin is a monument. Dead Confederates are honored all over this country, with cartoonish private statues, solemn public monuments, and even in the names of United States Army bases. It fortifies and heartens me to witness the protests against this practice and the growing clamor from serious nonpartisan public servants to redress it. But there are still those, like President Trump and the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who cannot understand the difference between rewriting and reframing the past. I say it is not a matter of airbrushing history, but of adding a new perspective. I am a black Southern woman, and of my immediate white male ancestors, all of them were rapists. My very existence is a relic of slavery and Jim Crow. According to the rule of hypodescent, the social and legal practice of assigning a genetically mixed-race person to the race with less social power, I am the daughter of two black people, the granddaughter of four black people, the great-granddaughter of eight black people. Go back one more generation and it gets less straightforward and more sinister. As far as family history has always told, and as modern DNA testing has allowed me to confirm, I am the descendant of black women who were domestic servants and white men who raped their help. It is an extraordinary truth of my life that I am biologically more than half white, and yet I have no white people in my genealogy in living memory, no voluntary whiteness. I am more than half white, and none of it was consensual. White Southern men, my ancestors, took what they wanted from women they did not love, over whom they had extraordinary power, and then failed to claim their children. What is a monument but a standing memory, an artifact to make tangible the truth of the past? My body and blood are a tangible truth of the South and its past. The black people I come from were owned by the white people I come from. The white people I come from fought and died for their lost cause. And I ask you now, who dares to tell me to celebrate them? Who dares to ask me to accept their mounted pedestals? You cannot dismiss me as someone who doesn't understand. You cannot say it wasn't my family members who fought and died. My blackness does not put me on the other side of anything. It puts me squarely at the heart of the debate. I don't just come from the South. I come from Confederates. I've got rebel gray blue blood coursing my veins. My great-grandfather, Will, was raised with the knowledge that Edmund Pettus was his father. Pettis, the storied confederate general, the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, the man for whom Selma's bloody Sunday bridge is named. So I am not an outsider who makes these demands. I am a great, great granddaughter. And here I'm called to say that there is much about the South that is precious to me. I do my best teaching and writing here. There is, however, a peculiar model of Southern pride that must now at long last be reckoned with. This is not an ignorant pride, but a defiant one. It's a pride that says our history is rich, our causes are justified, our ancestors lie beyond reproach. It is a pining for greatness, if you will. A wish, again, for a certain kind of American memory. A monument-worthy memory. But here's the thing. Our ancestors don't deserve your unconditional pride. Yes, I am proud of every one of my black ancestors who survived slavery. They earned that pride by any decent person's reckoning. But I'm not proud of the white ancestors whom I know, by virtue of my very existence, to be bad actors. Among the apologists for the Southern cause and for its monuments, there are those who dismiss the hardships of the past. They imagine a world of benevolent masters and speak with misty eyes of gentility and honor in the land. They deny plantation rape or explain it away or question the degree of frequency with which it occurred. To those people, it is my privilege to say... I am proof. I am proof that whatever else the South might have been or might believe itself to be, it was and is a space whose prosperity and sense of romance and nostalgia were built upon the grievous exploitation of black life. The dream version of the Old South never existed. Any manufactured monument to that time and place tells half a truth at best. The ideas and ideals it purports to honor are not real. To those who have embraced these delusions, now is the time to re-examine your position. Either you have been blind to a truth that my body's story forces you to see, or you really do mean to honor the oppressors at the expense of the oppressed, and you must at least acknowledge your emotional investment in a legacy of hate. Either way, I say the monuments of stone and metal, the monuments of cloth and wood, all the man-made monuments must come down. I defy any sentimental Southerner to defend our ancestors to me. I am quite literally made of the reasons to strip them of their laurels. Those brilliant words, written by Carolyn Randall Williams, the author of Lucy, Negro, Redux, and Soul Food Love, and a writer-in-residence at Vanderbilt University. And that appeared as an op-ed in the New York Times. And with that, we finish up another edition of the broadcast. Nicole Sandler, happy to be filling in for Brad and Desi, will do it one more time before they return. Stay safe everyone, and as Brad always says, good luck world.